0: Hello, and welcome to The Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph.
1: And I'm Ashley Wakefield.
0: And we're here to take you on a journey through the boring parts of your Bible, books that you just couldn't finish when you tried to read them. Together, I hope we'll get to see some of the hidden beauty in these books, and maybe afterwards, you'll love them too. But if not, that's okay. You will still get to tell your friends you got through them and have full bragging rights to your pastor. Just don't let it go to your head. So let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph, teaching pastor here at Wayfarers Christian Church, and I've got with me in the studio, Ashley Wakefield. Hello. Hey, how was your week this week, Ashley? It's
1: been good. It's been busy. Um putting papers together, but now that I've got it, you know, mostly behind me, it's it's much better, and the sun is shining, so I always feel a lot happier when the sun is shining outside, so.
0: Yeah, yeah, it has been a nice day today. It was it got really cold last night, mm-hmm. and uh, I was surprised, because, like, we're in spring now, and it felt like it was winter last night, but mm-hmm. uh, the weather's been really nice um, in Memphis here where we're at, but yeah, we've been going through the book of Isaiah chapter by chapter, and we are now in the story section of Isaiah. Isaiah. And this is going to be a little different than uh, sort of what we've been going up to this point. It's been a lot of poetry, a lot of metaphors, a lot of like reading between the lines even. And we get some uh, different ways to uh, sort of experience the book of Isaiah with these uh, brief chapters that we're going to have before we get to um, kind of what I call the second book of Isaiah. And we'll talk about that when we get to chapter 40. But um, this section, uh, chapters 36 through um, chapter forty, uh, chapter thirty nine is uh, really a story section focusing on the king of Hezekiah, and a little backstory to who Hezekiah is. He is a king that. Um, Uh, falls just after the time of the collapse of the northern tribes of Israel. Remember, I said that Israel divided into two separate kingdoms, the northern tribes of Israel up in the north, and then just Judah in the south. And at this time period with Hezekiah, um, the northern tribes have been wiped out by Assyria, and they are no longer around. And so it's just the tribe of Judah, the small tribe down in the south. And um, the uh, capital of that Tribe is Jerusalem, where the temple of God is and where David's uh, throne is, and many of the uh, important uh, things that happen in the Old Testament happen in Jerusalem. And so uh, we're kind of focused in this city in particular, um, the city of Zion. And uh, Hezekiah comes to power really in a time period where the kings before him were not good kings. They were kings that were following after other gods and goddesses and building uh, altars and high places on all sorts of different uh, hills and mountains and ravines and places, offering up sacrifices both to Yahweh on those altars and also to other gods on those altars. And um, there's this sense in which things are not going well uh, because Jerusalem's just kind of falling away from um, their worship of God. And so when Hezekiah comes to power, um, he actually starts to bring about a huge amount of reform to the city and begins to build a um, kind of a revival of sorts for the people of Jerusalem. And things seem to be going pretty well because, you know, he's finally, finally a king that values the decrees of God and is trying to get people back on track. And during the middle of all of this uh, terrible, uh, the middle of this revival, uh, they hear word that Assyria, that same nation that was, uh, uh, basically wiped out the northern tribes of Israel, is coming for them. And so uh, this story takes place as um, a field commander um, comes down to Jerusalem and announces that they should surrender. And if they don't, they're going to be besieged and taken over by Assyria. And it's this huge moment where Hezekiah is really forced to try and figure out what to do in this situation. Try and figure out how to go about protecting the city that he's trying to reform. And uh, it is very terrifying for everybody involved in this city. And so you'll see a lot through this passage that there's a lot of kind of callbacks to a lot of the themes in the poetry section of Isaiah. There is a callback to the theme of relying on Egypt as opposed to relying on God. Um, uh, the It's kind of used in the very coy way that The uh, um, commander sort of jibes at Jerusalem, not not relying on Egypt. You'll see some callbacks to uh, relying on horses and technology to advance them as opposed to relying on God. And it's very much kind of an on-the-nose kind of – story that's sort of meant to give us an insight into all of the poetry that we've read thus far. And it's a really condensed kind of almost parable of a sorts for all of that. And you can kind of read this as a parable, although I do believe that this story happened and we have archaeological evidence that it did happen, um, which is really cool. And I could get into the nerdy side notes of that, but that's, that's a podcast for another day. But um, yeah, this is uh, kind of the setup for what we're going to be experiencing here. Ashley, did you have any opening thoughts before we jump into the passage?
1: Um, other than I'm just really happy we're in a narrative. That's
0: pretty (laughs) much it.
1: Like, I really like the narrative portions of the Bible. Not that I don't like, you know, like the Psalms and Proverbs. Those are beautiful as well. But I just like that storytelling that the Bible gives you, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. Narrative, I will say, just as a prep for a lot of people, narrative in the Old Testament in particular is very different than how we tell narratives today um, there is a huge focus in narratives on repeated phrases and repeated themes in narratives and uh, oftentimes um, the Hebrew writers will use the same sentences in a narrative to kind of call you back to narratives in the past and so there's a huge kind of uh, linking of I kind of call them hyperlinks where um, you'll see like a sentence that's the same sentence that was used in a story before it and that sentence is to call you back to that other story, and you're supposed to keep that story in your mind. And so it's very circular, almost, in how it builds upon stories that have been told. And so, yeah, we're definitely going to be in some interesting territory here with these narratives, just keeping an eye on some of the different repeated phrases, repeated words, repeated concepts, and then we'll be doing great, I think. So, yeah, I'm excited to jump into this. You ready? Yep. All right, let's do this.
1: (laughs) 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Zennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. When the commander stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shepna, the secretary, and Joah's son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to him. The field commander said to them, Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have counsel and might for war, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look, I know you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff, which pierces the hand of anyone who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. But if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar? Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. How then can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you are depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this land without the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the field commander, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people on the wall. But the commander replied, was it only to your master and you that my master sent me to say these things and not to the people sitting on the wall who like you will have to eat their own excrement and drink their own urine then the commander stood and called out in hebrew hear the words of the great king the king of assyria this is what the king says do not let hezekiah deceive you he cannot deliver you do not let hezekiah persuade you to trust in the lord when he says The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then each of you will eat fruit from your own vine and fig tree and drink water from your own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says, the Lord will deliver us. Have the gods of any nations ever delivered their lands from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries have been able to save their lands from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But the people remained silent and said nothing in reply, because the king had commanded, Do not answer him. Then Eliakim son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shepna the secretary, and Joah son of Asaph, the recorder, went to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him what the field commander had said.
0: All righty, so we are looking at this story in particular with Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacking the fortified cities of Judah and capturing some of them already. That's kind of the first first we get is this isn't just a like random event where they just kind of march down. They've already kind of conquered some of the cities up in the north of Judah, and they're making their way south. To the capital, and so we're kind of have at this showdown where this is kind of like uh, the moment of the biggest battle that might happen. I will. It is worthy of note that Jerusalem is a really hard city to conquer. There are several different passages in Judges, in particular, that mention how hard it was to for the Israelites to conquer Jerusalem when it was overrun by um, the Jebusites that were living in Jerusalem. And part of that is just the topography of it. Um, It is on a very high hill. And so in terms of geography, it's pretty hard for an army to get to it. And it's funny in Judges, the way that they're able to capture it is actually there was a traitor in the Jebusite camp Mm -hmm. who uh, the people of uh, Israel were able to bribe to get them into a back door into the city and conquer. And that was the only way they were able to conquer Jerusalem. So just keep that in mind that this is a city that's a little bit harder to overcome than a lot of the other cities up in the north. And so when Assyria does come to it, it's definitely probably going to mean more of a siege-like Uh, way of dealing with the city more than just like full-on attacking it. Also, one of the things that Assyria was known to do, as were many of the different nations around this time period, was to uh, take care of the crops and uh, farmer regions around the city so that the city was starved of food. They often would put it to fire and burn all of it or harvest it for themselves and take it back to their land. And so they often would not just do a siege to a city but would often remove any chance of them having any crops for the next couple years as mm-hmm. well so this is also very dire in terms of just uh, this, uh, this army being on their front doorstep is pretty much all their crops are probably gone at this point and so just to give you an idea of just the uh, level of fear that's probably within this city um, and probably also makes you understand their this, this little jibe comment that they make about eating their own excrement and drinking their own urine is a lot of the siege like mentality of Assyria was going to force This this people to be in the situation. So, yeah, it's pretty brutal just in terms of how they would go about warfare in this time period and not a very fun situation overall. Um, We definitely have this uh, boasting field commander who uh, we can see is kind of the voice for. Um, Ashley, I thought you put this very interestingly. You you felt like he kind of has the voice of the devil in a sense of just kind of having a very adversary kind of deceptive kind of tone to his voice and stuff. Yeah,
1: I do, because it was definitely intimidating. He's trying to intimidate, but then it's like he's using... The truth and sort of like twisting the truth in order to intimidate, which I think Satan is very good at doing. And you kind of see that if you go back to the book of Genesis, where he's basically trying to convince Eve that if she eats from this fruit that she's not supposed to, then she's going to become more like God. And that's not what God wants, but she was already like God, you know, so it's sort of like he takes this sort of level of truth, and he twisted around to make you do something, which I think is what he's doing in this. Is sort of like he's very well aware that God did send him to destroy the Assyrians, which is partly true, because if you look back at Isaiah 10, it does talk about how um the how Assyria was used as the uh, the rod of God's wrath and and how right. he put like the club, like the club of his anger in the hand mm-hmm. of the king of Assyria. But then the thing that he is not aware of or may not realize at this point is the fact that because he's deviating from the purpose that God gave him to, punish the nation of Israel the way that he wanted and now he's like become arrogant and now he has this idea that he wants to conquer all these different nations. God's like, well, so now I'm going to turn against you and now my wrath is turning against you because now you're not doing my will. So it's sort of like he only has a partial understanding of the truth and is like using that to manipulate um, the nation of, of Israel. And also going back to what we talked about before the podcast started about how he's making a mockery of the fact that Hezekiah tore down the altars of God, which they were not supposed to have. They were not supposed to be worshiping God on these high places where other gods were being worshipped. So he was actually doing the good thing, but making him feel as if they were doing something wrong. So it's like the idea that he's basically telling these half truths because he himself doesn't have a full understanding of what's going on. So
0: Yeah, yeah, no. And you can tell that this is kind of how Assyria is operating is kind of even this like religious warfare, mm-hmm. I might call it, where they purposely use religious things to uh, incriminate the king so that it gets the people to deny the king which is really uh, kind of a theme of uh the whole book of uh isaiah in general is that um the enemies in isaiah are often people that are religious like the prophets that are religious and they say that things are going to be fine and okay and there is this kind of theme that goes throughout the whole book of uh people using religion of their very religion to justify their own actions and their own deeds Mm -hmm. that god's not actually okay with and so you see this arrogant um field commander of Assyria, kind of assuming he knows how God feels and how God thinks about Hezekiah and how he thinks about Jerusalem and kind of acting as a false prophet of sorts to this people. And so I think we're kind of meant to kind of clue into hint, hint, wink, wink, false prophets act this way too, you know, and this is kind of like a parable of sorts of how False prophets also sound a lot like this Assyrian commander, and so we shouldn't listen to them either. And so that's a really interesting uh, way that uh, I think that kind of related to kind of that, that Satan demonic kind of mentioning and twisting of the truth in a way that just has that half truth of semblance of right and yet then twist it for a completely different purpose. Uh, and so, no, I think you're right to put that point that out. Also, I just wanted to call out, just because we've mentioned Shebna before, but Shebna gets a reappearance here as the secretary. Um, He's been demoted now, and definitely not in the same position as he was, but um, we do get kind of a mention of him again, and uh, the fact that he's still in this kind of secretary position, which is kind of fun. Um, You can go back and check one of the episodes way early on. I think it was in like 19 or 20. Yeah, Yeah, um, it
1: was in Isaiah
0: 22.
1: 22, Um, yeah, Yeah, that's where he gets demoted, because he was building... Um, He was trying to carve a grave in a really high place for himself and God basically humbles him by removing him from the palace administrator position and giving Eliakim that position. And that's where we talked about like the nail in the hard place, like Eliakim, yeah.
0: Right, right, right. It's been so long since we've done that, it's so (laughs) crazy. Um, But yeah, we get to see Eliakim again. He's the palace administrator, so we can see that Mm -hmm. demotions already happened and it's kind of cool to like see these names and be like, I recognize that reference.
1: Yeah, and I actually like the location where this conversation is happening because when i saw like that place where it says the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field i was like what is that about so i looked it up like a little bit and more so like the wording behind it and what it meant Mm -hmm. and how it kind of makes you know, give you the idea that there's like some type of spiritual presence of God there. Because I know that in the Hebrew, like the aqueduct is kind of like a conduit. It's like an, an upward climb that you have to go up something. And the word upper used there is the same word, Elyon. Like if you think about the word um, El Elyon, like um, for God, where it means most high, like that same word that's used for that is used for upper there. And it's sort of like this idea where you're ascending upwards um, to reach God. And then it sort of like has this downward pull where it says on the road to Laundry's field where there's like a washing place there. And so it's this like idea. And I, You know, kind of read this you know, article where it kind of connected those ideas together that you kind of like ascending upwards to reach God. And then when you coming back down, you're being washed clean where the laundress field is. And I kind of liked that idea. And a lot of like wonderful things happen in the midst of water with God. If you think about like Moses parting the Red Sea or um, Naaman being cleansed of leprosy in the Jordan River or Elijah being taken up. Uh, to heaven in the Jordan River, or how Christ would r- r- repeatedly do his sermons near water or on water in a boat. So uh, it's just kind of reminded me of like the, they're having this conversation in the midst of God, if that makes sense. Yeah, but, yeah. no,
0: no. Uh, that theme you can very much uh, notice in the book of Psalms. There are some Psalms, I think starting in Psalm 122, I believe. I could be wrong on that. Don't quote me on that. But in that area, there is a uh, portion of the psalms in that section uh called the psalms of ascent and uh the idea is that these psalms are psalms that the people of jerusalem after having been exiled in babylon are uh going back to jerusalem and as they go back to jerusalem they are slowly ascending. The topography would make Mm -hmm. them slowly ascend to the mountain of Jerusalem. And so there's this kind of theme in that. And then all throughout the Bible of you always go up to God Mm -hmm. because in the topography of their land the temple was the highest point of the mountain of zion mm-hmm. and so you're always kind of ascending to god and then you're descending down from god yeah and so i think that's kind of the theme you're hitting on there mm-hmm. is that uh there's this kind of sense in which anytime the language of going up is used and going down is y- used you're, they're kind of keying into that theme a little bit and we're meant to kind of we're supposed to pay attention to those types of small little verbs of going up and going down which is kind of fun it's also also hard because like there's so many instances of using those phrases in yeah the Bible. it kind
1: of reminds me of when um jacob saw the the angels ascending and descending down the ladder when yeah. he was sleeping out there in the in the wilderness yeah
0: yeah no that's a, that's another reference that you could pull from that so yeah another podcast friend of the day for sure <laughs> but um definitely uh something to keep your eyes on when you're looking through um these uh, pro sections as well That's a lot, well as poetry but yeah so we have this moment where um this arrogant commander begins to rail against uh, hezekiah and against what he's trying to do and we do get the sense of uh just the hopelessness of this uh we can definitely feel like uh the there's not much hope for these people in jerusalem and for hezekiah in particular and there's kind of some really interesting narrative tension where you're yeah. like wondering if the people are going to you know dethrone Hezekiah and go along with you know um, yeah that's the,
1: my favorite part of I think probably if it's not one of my favorite parts of my favorite part of the story is when they're like okay don't say this in Hebrew where they can understand it say it in Aramaic so it's just between us and he's like oh you want me to say in Aramaic okay I'm gonna say where everybody can hear it exactly <laughs> just like exactly the yeah. shadiest thing ever
0: oh yeah no he's he's like full on trying to like get like a uh well in like shipping terms a mutiny to happen yeah. here i don't know yeah. what do they call that in uh when it's not a ship and it's not like a captain what do they call a mutiny when it's not a ship or a captain but it's like a city and they're trying to is it just like a revolt i guess it's yeah. a or an uprising i guess
1: yeah revolt uprising yeah
0: i don't know what the yeah uh, yeah yeah Maybe you can tell me in uh, the comments of this podcast what word you would use for something that's a mutiny, but not for a captain of a ship, but for a king over a land. Um, Usurping is the best word I I can think of. But, um, yeah, so we have this kind of (laughs) coy way that he's using um, his kind of position here, speaking in Hebrew, trying to get the people to... uh, uh, follow after him and not Hezekiah. And I do love the kind of brief little note where it says um, the people did not respond to him because mm-hmm. Hezekiah told them not to. And so there's this kind of sense of like the people are trusting Hezekiah in this and they're going to still obey him. And uh, you had an interesting point about just how that kind of relates to the Proverbs passage of don't answer a fool according to his folly.
1: Yeah, I I, thought, I read that and I actually thought about that and if you click on that it actually gives a the cross reference to that in Proverbs where it oh, talks yeah. about like not answering fools <laughs> according to their folly. And I know that, you know, we talked about how before that it says answer a fool according to his <laughs> folly, but then it says don't answer it, which basically just has to do with circumstances. It's like some, in some situations you have to respond to fools and sometimes you just don't. And, and I think this is one of the decisions where Hezekiah makes a wise decision not to respond back. Um So yeah, and I'm not sure exactly because i know that this story also gets repeated in second kings um Mm -hmm. 18 through 20 so i don't know at this point if isaiah has already given the prophecy about um assyria being defeated and he's just taking comfort in that so he's like i'm not going to respond because i already got a word from the lord that this is going to work out so i'm not i don't even have to say anything you know
0: yeah i think some of it is that they are unsure how the king of assyria is going to respond to them what are the stipulations is it just going to be like i want you to pay tribute you know Mm because a lot of times this type of thing uh they would uh um sometimes just demand okay i'm now kind of the ruler over this area now i've conquered your outlying territories and towns i'm gonna let you keep your kingship and i'm gonna let you keep everything you just have to pay me a -hmm. certain amount of gems and gold and food every every year, and we'll, we'll call it good. Um, sometimes that would happen. And so maybe they were hoping that that would be the case and, you know, that they could continue on without any problems. But in this case, it really does appear as if the king of Assyria has just had enough with Jerusalem and really wants to take them out. And so I think that's probably... Uh, why they react the way they do at the very end in verse 22, where Eliakim and all of them tear their clothes? You know, mm-hmm. they're like like grief stricken. That's usually that's a thing we don't do today. By the way, as something like when grief strikes us, we don't tear our clothes. <laughs> um, but in that that uh, time period, that was a very symbolic way of um, showing extreme grief and extreme. Um, uh, feelings of abandonment even and oftentimes was a way to petition god for uh help in a situation was to tear your clothes and so yeah it's very much a uh something that we see at the very end of this story um is just how affected they are by what he does or what the what the um announcer from assyria does and um in particular too i think a heavy point in this entire story is just how brazen he is against god like Mm -hmm. he really assumes that he knows what god is up to and that god doesn't like hezekiah and he he's just really like like, at the very end, uh, this is probably the most arrogant thing he says at the very end, which is, like, have the gods of any nation ever delivered their lands from the hand of the king of Assyria? And to be fair, he's not wrong. Like, mm-hmm. he's, he's, he's in front of an army that is, like, leveled nation after nation. Babylon fell to him. Like, you know, he's very much, like, uh, able to point to all these different gods of different nations and be like, you know, did they even, you know, live? And, yeah, he's got a track record of, like, ten wins and zero losses. So, he it's not just from a place of arrogance. He definitely has, like, a, a list of nations that he's conquered that he can look to and say, I've overcome these gods and, you know, that type of thing. But just kind of the brazenness of just, like, saying that the Lord won't deliver you from me because, like, you know my gods are more powerful than your gods and that kind of mentality it's just really really brazen of him to do and i think that's kind of where we're kind of left at the end of this with just wow you threw down the gauntlet pretty hard and god's got to respond or his reputation's not gonna right be that high and when if if you know your history of your bible when when a nation like this kind of throws down the gauntlet that hard usually God's going to throw down his gauntlet as hard, even if not harder.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I thought it was interesting that you um, brought this up about how he's kind of repeating the same thing that God, he's repeating the same thing that God told the Israelites in verse 16 when he talks about, you know, make peace with me and come out to me. Then each of you will eat his fruit um, from your own vine and your fig tree and drink water from your own instern until I come and take you to a land of your own. So it does kind of sound like the promises of God of letting them enter the promised land. Like, that's what it... Oh, yeah. yeah no, no. That, that is, like, that. legit
0: verse that's being quoted from their Bible. And, yeah. like, uh, I can't remember exactly if it's in Genesis or if it's in... But that's a promise that God gives to mm-hmm. Israel. And he's... Either he read their Bible, and because mm-hmm. it's obvious he can read, he, speak Hebrew, so he might have like read their religious text, found that blessing in that religious text, and was like, "I'm going to use this to my own advantage," and then right. quoted it to them, um, saying. I will give you this instead of your God, which, man, like, on on the, on the level of just, like, arrogance. That, right. That <laughs> <laughs> um, it's insane. Uh, so, no, no, yeah, I forgot to point that out, and I'm glad you did, because, yeah. like, it's very, very in the face of these Jews in this situation that he's, like, Promising them something that God promised them if they follow after Him. Yeah, so. and I
1: think it's interesting also how He's warning them, like warning them about the same thing that God did about not trusting in Egypt, because He basically calls him like some type of broken reed. Um, there was like some reference to him being a broken reed. Earlier yeah, in, in verse six,
0: He says, "Look, you are depending on e- Egypt, that splintered reed of a mm. staff. Yeah, which pi- pierces your hand of anyone who leans on it. Which I think <laughs> is kind of funny. It's kind of a slight jab at, at Egypt, saying Egypt is like a staff that's so splintered that any you try and lean on it for any type of use it just gives you some splinters which is just kind of funny to me but yeah
1: and i read this little note about that comment that he made about it may have been referring to and this may have been other things that the king of egypt may have done but like there was a um, a country called Ashdod that fell to Babylon that actually aligned themselves with Egypt before they fell and once Ashdod fell they ended up giving up all the people that they were in alliance with to the nation of Assyria because they were afraid of them so it was like oh, the wow. idea that it was like yeah so I know for a fact that the king of Egypt or the pharaoh of Egypt portrays uh, betrays people so it's like you're definitely depending on the wrong person so. oh
0: yeah for sure and that uh, like you said kind of carries from the theme that's been in this entire book of Isaiah is that you shouldn't trust Egypt mm-hmm. and Egypt not going to save you. There's been a lot of chapters that we focused on uh, previously that have kind of really gone into detail about how an alliance with Egypt is not going to work out for Israel and that they should trust in God. So, yeah, no, I think that that's a great place to kind of end it uh, today just with a lot of those different thoughts. And um, keep that in mind as we continue through the story. The story is going to get way more interesting as we continue. And Oddly, it's not going to end how you think it's going to end. It doesn't end with a happy ending, I will tell you, but uh it's still going to be fun. Uh so yeah, we are we will be back in your feed again next week for chapter 37 as we continue to find out what's going to happen to Hezekiah now that they've heard this audacious and brazen uh claims from the land of Assyria. So thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye-bye.